0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series offers a unique discussion surrounding a new study conducted and coordinated. By the national institutes of health and the study is called the systemic allergic reactions to sars cov2 vaccination trial which is a mouthful but we're going to get into that in just a second this trial is currently enrolling participants at over 30 sites across the united states and we are pleased to welcome two of the investigators involved in this study to offer more details and perspective dr lisa wheatley is the section chief for food allergy atopic dermatitis and allergic mechanisms at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease in Rockville, Maryland. And Dr. Franklin Atkinson is a professor of medicine and director of the graduate training program in clinical investigation at the Johns Hopkins and in Baltimore. Well, thank you both so much for taking time to join us today and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you for inviting us.
0: Oh, this is gonna be great. This is an exciting study. And before we discuss some of the background and details with this specific research study, can you both offer some insight as to your role with this trial? Uh, Dr. Wheatley, let's start with you. How did you get involved and and what is your role?
1: So obviously the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is taking a primary role in trying to understand the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Um and so when the question came up about anaphylaxis to the new mRNA lipid nanoparticle vaccines, um obviously my branch, the allergy branch, was um contacted and we had we started um the investigation as to what should we do uh to look into this and, and then contacted scientific advisors.
0: Excellent. And Dr. Atkinson, you're listed as a co investigator for the study. What does that
2: fail? Well, I, I'm one of three uh, um, investigators who have an interest in um, hypersensitivity reactions to medicines and vaccines uh, who were invited to participate in a discussion group to identify what needs to be done, uh, supported by the NIH, to uh reassure uh, the po- population who are receiving the vaccine that it indeed is safe and uh f- effective of course the issue for us is safety and particularly uh the issue of allergy or allergic reactions to the vaccine
0: mm. And along those lines, Dr. Atkinson, if you can summarize, and this is a loaded question, I understand, but to the, the best of your ability, what do we know about the reports of allergic or anaphylactic reactions to the Moderna and Pfizer mRNA COVID vaccines thus far? Do we have any idea of a common link or cause as to why these are occurring?
2: Well, that's a complicated uh, question, David, and uh, the, the answers are not fully known or we wouldn't be doing this study. But Basically, um, the original studies that uh, resulted in the licensing of the two mRNA vaccines uh, didn't have any anaphylactic reactions. So it was hoped that the allergic uh, profile of these vaccines would be very small. Um, But once the vaccine was... uh, Disseminated first in Great Britain and then in the United States, there were several uh, notable cases of anaphylaxis, uh, which is an immediate allergic reaction to the to the vaccine shortly after it's administered, uh, reported. And um, these were somewhat unexpected. Uh, you don't see these types of of uh, anaphylactic reactions to the standard flu vaccine. Uh, And so uh, surveillance was uh, begun uh, through the uh, CDC's uh, surveillance system to record uh, reported reactions to vaccines in the U.S. And those have now been published showing a vaccine reaction rate uh, involving serious allergic reactions of between five and 10 or 11 per million vaccinations. So. What we know is that the allergic, serious allergic reactions are rare based on early data, Um, and yet there's more than what would have been expected. And the question is uh, are there certain individuals who are more susceptible to these reactions? And if so, can we identify those? Is it related at all to their prior allergic history in terms of previous um, serious experiences with? drugs or vaccines, um, or can we find uh, with a more serious, uh, control study going forward that, uh, the, the expected, uh, serious reactions are indeed very low and are clearly, uh, identifiable when they occur.
0: Mm. You know, in this, this whole pandemic has been, uh, such a lesson in, um, trying to standardize as much as possible in real time while things unfold and often change before our very eyes. So the fact that you were able to coordinate this study and get it up and running in relatively short time is really uh, inspirational. And I I look forward to learning more about it. And along those lines, Dr. Wheatley, can you tell us more about what this study is investigating and specifically if you could talk about the primary and secondary outcomes?
1: Yeah, so as Dr. Atkinson said, what we really need is reliable prospective data on the incidence and severity of allergic reactions in the population, and particularly in those people who are highly allergic, you know, because they've had multiple anaphylaxis in the past um, or uh, are at otherwise high risk, uh, mostly being, in in this study, people with mast cell disorders to determine whether in fact there is an appreciable risk of reaction. Because what we'd really like to do and what we absolutely expect is that anaphylaxis will be rare. Um, And therefore, we can reassure the population that this is a safe vaccination. On the other hand, if we are wrong and um even if the risk is somewhat more moderate, what we then would want to do is to try to figure out why are these reactions happening? And, and because this is a pr- prospective study, we will have pre- and post-vaccination samples to de- look at mechanisms. Um, and then if we can determine, well, what is the risk, um, we then may be able to establish safe mechanisms um, to vaccinate individuals.
0: Mm. And so, is this study looking at the number of individuals who experience an immediate allergic or anaphylactic reaction while they're enrolled in the study? Is that the the main outcome you're looking at?
1: Yes. So the main o- outcome is exactly that. We will vaccinate individuals, and we will observe them for 90 minutes after the vaccination, and we will be evaluating the proportion of patients who have systemic allergic reactions to each of the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna vaccines.
0: Mm. And Dr. Wheeler, you mentioned this term prospective a couple of times. Can you briefly discuss why a prospective evaluation uh, would offer a little more strength compared to sort of retrospectively looking at events that have occurred in the past?
1: So the problem with looking backwards is um, obviously that it's not unbiased. So when we do a prospective study, we're looking, we're taking in individuals who've never had the vaccine. um, And we have uh, investigators who actually don't know what the person is receiving. Um, So they have no bias as to what's about to happen. When people report things after the fact, um, two, two problems occur. One is that Um, You mostly hear about people who have problems, because after all, they're the ones who want to tell you about it. And Mm. two, you don't really understand exactly what the problem was, um, because you don't have the data from that time.
0: Mm. Okay. All right, Dr. Atkinson, can you give us some details in regards to who's being recruited for this study? So who are you looking to include or exclude?
2: OK, so there are three groups of uh, subjects being recruited for the study. The first are those who have had severe allergies, uh, allergic reactions in the past, either needing an injection of epinephrine uh, after an encounter with a, a, a food allergen or being stung by a bee or have had severe reactions to to medications given in the past or, or other vaccines. Um, so that's that's one group, and that's the group that uh, we won't, we're asking the question: Are is, because of past severe reactions, are you at greater risk for a problem with this vaccine? The second group are patients who have mast cell disorders uh, that put them, uh, for other reasons, at risk for um, uh, more frequent and more easily provoked uh, uh, acute allergic reactions to see whether they are at increased risk. Um, And third is a control group, that is patients who have no allergies to be used to compare uh, a non-allergic background uh, reaction rate with those who have had, uh, either have currently have a mast cell disorder or who have had serious allergic reactions in the past.
0: And is there anybody who would not be eligible for this study, for instance, uh, if they have severe asthma or they're taking biologic treatments for any condition or they're reliant on oral steroids, for instance?
2: Well, if they meet the criteria that are set up uh, by the CDC for administering the vaccine um, and they don't have any of the exclusions for this particular study, of which there are a number, uh, they they are eligible to participate. Um, so the, for for example, uh, one excluded group are those who've had documented uh, allergic uh, severe allergic reactions to any ingredient within the vaccine. Um, mm. Now, because these are new vaccines that we've never uh, had uh, in our armamentarium in the past with regard to the use of mRNA rather than viral proteins to immunize patients, uh, there very few going to be excluded on the basis of that. Um, The the other ingredient that is of concern uh, is uh, something found in many different medicines and vaccines called polyethylene glycol. And there are a few very rare patients who are allergic to that. And if they are known to be allergic to that, they get excluded from the study.
1: Mm. Dave, can I also uh, make pregnancy is
2: a, excuse me is an exclusion factor as well as it is in many uh, studies of this type. I'm sorry.
1: That's okay, my fault. Um, Dave, I did just want to note that people on biologic therapies and systemic steroids are not in the trial, not because. We think that really necessarily will interfere with their response to vaccination, but if in, but for the studies we're looking at to figure out why vaccinations might cause anaphylaxis or an allergic reaction, um, those would likely interfere with those studies.
0: Mm, that makes sense. Well, I think that's a great overview, and obviously we're going to provide links for this for everybody listening and uh, to make sure they can go to the website and, and look at all of the extensive inclusion-exclusion criteria, but that's a good overview for to, uh, to help us at least get in the right mindset of what types of patients you're looking at or those who may not be eligible. Now, Dr. Wheatley, you mentioned before that um, after participants receive the vaccine, they'll be observed for 90 minutes, but what else will this study entail? Are you taking blood samples or other types of laboratory studies or samples, and how many visits will be necessary?
1: Yes, so the uh, participants will not be just sitting there waiting for something to be happening. Um, Prior to vaccination, we will be uh, getting lab uh, specimens, and then after the vaccination, we'll be getting lab specimens, and that will be whether or not you are having a reaction. Um, Because it's important to be able to compare people who have been vaccinated or sitting there happy as clams compared to people who have been vaccinated and are having a reaction. Um, So we're getting a really quite wide variety of samples, um, looking at really most of the possibilities we could come up with um, to think of why a systemic allergic reaction might happen And, in fact, we're getting some of the uh, uh, non-directed lab samples. So, you know, you can only find what you look for to a certain degree, um, but there are a lot of kinds of mechanistic sampling nowadays, which looks at proteins and um, what kind of mRNA is produced by the cells and things like that that we are also going to be collecting. sort of as a way to look at, well, what could we have missed if we can't explain it with our usual um, specimens looking at mast cell products or complement or the contact activation system.
0: Mm. And um, are there more than one visit entailed? Uh, So is it uh, they'll get, uh, especially, uh, obviously, if they get two doses of the vaccine, they need to come twice, but are there other visits in between those doses or afterwards?
1: Um so we this is a placebo control trial because we know that allergic appearing reactions can happen even in the absence of true allergy. Um as you know from my title I oversee a lot of food allergy studies and so we absolutely always use a placebo control because you can be fooled in thinking that someone is having an allergic reaction when they are not. So, one-third of the participants will actually get a first dose, which is placebo. Neither they nor the team administering it will know that. So, for a person who gets um, the virum vaccines from the start, they will have two visits, which will be followed by two phone calls. If they are in the placebo group, they will get three visits, the placebo uh, injection and then the two virum injections.
0: Okay, uh, and Dr. Atkinson, you mentioned before about those that you're looking at specifically with different types of allergic conditions, such as food allergy or medication allergies, or even allergic rhinitis. Um, but on the surface, it would seem like those those patients would be very different from one another, and also different from those with mast cell disorders. And this is I'm I'm giving you the really hard questions. I apologize, <laughs> but you know, can you just give us some background as to how those overlap? Uh, is there some common thread about Those individuals in their allergy cells, for instance, as to why they may respond differently to these vaccines? Uh,
2: Very good question. Um, I think uh, the the current uh, accepted dogma is that most cases of anaphylaxis, which is the acute onset of a a crisis disorder, uh, result from the activation of mast cells, And mast cells can be activated in a number of ways uh, by uh, allergen, uh, by uh, the allergic antibody IgE that attaches to them and recognizes things that we're allergic to, like foods or medicines or uh, pollens at this time of year. Um, And then there are certain disorders uh, where mast cells, even without the presence of IgE antibody, are have a lower threshold for being activated by other um, pathway, shall we say. Um, and so the, the acute allergic reactions, the ones that are life-threatening and very serious, uh, are presumed to be, one way or another, the result of activating mast cells. And that's the common feature of all of these groups of patients that are being studied.
0: And along those lines, Dr. Atkinson, how will the study coordinators ensure that somebody enrolled truly has these allergic conditions or a mast cell disorder?
2: Well, the uh, patient's history and any available medical record can be consulted, but there's a requirement for extensive uh, retrieval of medical records um, to document the allergies. Um, but uh, there are a few sentinel events that are unlikely to be ambiguous, such as the use of ephedrine, for example, to treat the reaction uh, and the time frame in which the reaction occurred. So the reactions have to be relatively recent within the last five years. Uh, so that precludes having to go back and look at what might have happened 20 or 30 years ago. Mm.
0: Dr. Wheatley, how many people are you trying to enroll in this study? And along those lines, why are there so many sites involved?
1: Um, Well, I think you can go backwards from that, which is why are there so many sites involved? And that's because we're looking for 3,400 people.
0: Um,
1: Mm. And two-thirds of those people um, will be those that fall into the highly allergic or mast cell disorder group. And so to get that kind of number, you do need a lot of investigators at a lot of sites talking to a lot of people.
0: That makes perfect sense. And how many sites are there, roughly?
1: Um, there are 30, roughly, at this point.
0: Okay. And are they? I assume they're spread out across the United States geographically?
1: They are. We have people from coast to coast and from north to south. Wow. <laughs> I'm still, I'm
0: just, I'm amazed that you were able to get all of this put together in such a, a fast timeline. And now you're at the point where actually enrolling studies, so or enrolling participants, rather. It's amazing. Dr. Atkinson, is this safe to do? What happens if someone has an allergic reaction to one of these vaccines during the study? Uh, you both mentioned that this is a relatively rare phenomenon, but what, what precautions are being taken in case somebody does have anaphylaxis?
2: Well, uh, it's an interesting question, but it's uh, one that's easy to answer. Uh, These uh, studies will be done in uh, facilities that will be manned by trained allergy specialists and their staff, and all of the necessary equipment and medications to treat acute allergy will be present. It's really not different, if you think about it, uh, from uh, patients who, who were on Um, allergen immunotherapy who are coming to their allergist to get treated with something they're known to be allergic to and a small Mm -hmm. fraction of whom will have an immediate reaction that requires identification and early treatment. So for allergists, this is um, not an unfamiliar circumstance and hopefully patients will see it the same way.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you mentioned, this is happening in a general population along the the lines of five to 10 out of a million, and if you're enrolling 3,400, I I suppose it's quite possible nobody would have anaphylaxis. Is that correct?
2: Uh, That is correct, and that is a concern. Um, And it's only because of the urgency of doing the study sooner rather than later uh, that we can't have a sample size that would assure that we have uh, enough of the uh, immediate reactions to be able to study them mechanistically. Uh, but we will be able to determine with the sample size that's uh, chosen for this study, you know whether what what the reaction rate is and whether it's an increased uh, level in patients who have a strong allergic background.
0: Mm-hmm. Doctor Wheatley, along the lines of safety and monitoring. If you take this to the thirty thousand foot level, how do you, you know, coordinate and make sure that across all these different sites and all of these participants that um, things are going smoothly and you're not seeing any scary signals? And you know, what is along those lines? I guess can you explain what a DSMB is?
1: Yeah. So from the thirty thousand foot level, it really isn't that high up because we have site monitors who will be in contact. With the sites every week during this trial, um, discussing what's happening, and I will be receiving adverse event reports to look for, you know, not not anaphylaxis, obviously. I will be notified about that right away, but are there any patterns that look that don't look good? In addition then, in a, to the monitors and to myself, we have the data safety monitoring board. Um, and they are a group of experts in allergy, um, as well as statistics and ethics, who review the protocol and consent before we ever sent it to an investigational review board um, to be reviewed. Um, to make sure that it is, in fact, a worthwhile study and that it is a study with um, safety in mind. And they will also be reviewing the results, including the adverse events, if any, um, every 500 participants to make sure that, in fact, um, this study is going well and we are not uh, exposing people to um, a risk that is not understood.
0: Mm. I I think that's great insight for a lot of our listeners who who don't understand what is involved in getting something like this up and running and then monitoring it over time. So Dr. Wheatley, I want to ask you the million dollar question. How many evening or weekend conference calls have you had already uh, <laughs> just to get things up and running? Uh,
1: what I'd have to say is that this has largely consumed my life for the last four months.
2: <laughs> Dr. Atkinson, would you agree with that as well for yourself? Well, I'm less involved than in, uh... Dr. Wheatley in terms of the uh, setting up of the uh, many di- different details of the study. Um, but uh, even at an individual site like uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, where I am, um, it takes a lot of uh, paperwork and discussions and uh, arrangements to set up a study like this, especially when uh, time, timeliness is, is crucial because of the uh, need for early data to have a public health impact, which is you know what is really driving the need for this study.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Wheatley, you mentioned 3,400 participants, but how long do you anticipate that this study will last? What are you hoping, how, how soon are you hoping to enroll that number of, of people?
1: Um, we're hoping to get that number of people in eight to 12 weeks. Um, obviously, the, it's, it's timely because thankfully, um, large numbers of people are getting enrolled in the United States in vaccination, so um we hope to see the end of the worst of the pandemic at least um and also um to be timely um, if it takes too long uh we won't get the answer necessarily for this particular vaccine, but I'd like to point out that part of our interest in this study is in fact the vaccine platform. And this mRNA lipid nanoparticle platform is very, very new um, and also very, very exciting because we went from, you know, a disease discovery in December of one year to widespread vaccination in December of the next year. Um, So, I, I see this platform as being, in some sense, possibly the future of vaccination. So, if we can understand if there are problems with it. Um, We can engineer them out, uh, potentially.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Atkinson, you've touched upon this, and as you know, there are millions of people um, in the United States and beyond that have food allergies, medication allergies, venom allergies, not to mention those who have mast cell disorders. And along the... The distribution of these COVID vaccines, every single time an adverse reaction is reported, it heightens anxiety uh, within this community. And I'm sure some are even scared to learn about this new research study, thinking maybe it's not safe for them to get. So what do you say to those those individuals about the safety of these vaccines? Do they have to be in this research study or or can they safely receive them as they normally would in the community?
2: Well, There's several questions there. I think I can try to address. One is that is the issue of whether they could safely receive the vaccine outside of the study. And in most, well, in all cases, the answer is yes. In terms of guidelines that we're all now living under from the CDC and the FDA, Um, but many will be adverse to taking that risk because of their uh, frightening experiences with uh, uh, allergic reactions in the past, and we think that they will be appropriately attracted to the uh, to the study because they will they will get their vaccination, which provides unequivocal uh, benefit to them um, in a in the safest possible environment. That is an environment that's monitored by uh, experts who know how to handle any serious allergic reactions and with a, with appropriate staff to respond immediately rather than going home and then having something happen uh, when you're away from a medical environment. So we think there are a lot of attractive reasons why people who are frightened or who have are just concerned, are not maybe not going to the level of, of anxiety that they're going to say no, but they've been postponing their vaccination because of Their memory of what happened to them when they took some vaccine in the past, or had a bad reaction to peanuts, for example, Um, and don't want to go through that again, Uh, those will be the ones who will be uh, treated uh, in the in the study and appropriately so, Um, and will provide them in this case with uh, unequivocal benefit uh, that will outweigh in the assessment of almost everyone the risk of of having these reactions if they occur and certainly uh, in terms of of any life threatening potential um, uh, uh, which which is going to be minimal or non existent really mm
0: mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, really, there's, there's very clearly established criteria that seem to be doing a fantastic job of really separating out those at real risk. And that would be anybody with a known allergy to any of the ingredients to these vaccines. And as you mentioned, there's very few ingredients in there that are known to cause allergy other than potentially the polyethylene glycol or polysorbate for some of them, um, or if they've had you know known adverse or anaphylactic reaction to their first dose. But otherwise, the vast majority of people Absolutely, can get these vaccines very safely in the community. But as you mentioned, I love that you mentioned this. This study offers a very unique opportunity where, if they do have concern or if they're putting it off for whatever reason, this is how to do it. So, and this is the time to do it and how to do it uh, for those folks that really do have a lot of uh, concern regarding it. So, I think the timing is perfect, especially as these roll out. And Dr. Atkinson, along those lines, what do you say to your patients to reassure them about the safety of these COVID vaccines? I'm sure you've had these conversations uh, probably every day for the last few months. Uh,
2: Yes, I think all of the investigators involved in these 30 centers uh, have had ongoing uh, dialogues with patients and with referring physicians about uh, the risks associated with vaccination uh, in patients like the ones in this study who have had serious problems in the past. Um, again, this is easier to do than would be the case if this were not a life-saving, extremely important public health vaccination program that we're talking about here. Um, If this were the standard flu vaccine, then the um, uh, option of opting out of of uh, becoming vaccinated becomes more realistic because the risks are so much smaller. But I think Most of us feel and communicate to our patients that the value of the vaccination in this pandemic era here greatly exceeds any possible risk that they could have from uh, a study that's designed specifically to minimize any impact of an adverse event that might occur from the vaccination itself.
0: Mm, uh, That's great perspective. I, I think a lot of folks are looking at this as just one question of is the vaccine safe or not? But as you mentioned, it's really in the context of um, is the vaccine safe compared to me getting infection <laughs> You know, during a global pandemic. And Dr. Wheatley, I'd love for you to chime in as well. Have you had similar thoughts and conversations with folks uh, about the safety of these vaccines or any, any other pearls you'd like to add?
1: Um, no, I think that really covers it, that you're looking at um, a risk that we're trying to understand if it's real even. Um, so honestly, my entire hope is that we will vaccinate 3,400 people and not see a re- reaction. Um, because I honestly think it is safe, and a, and a lot of the study is based on we want to reassure people that it is safe, even if you have had a reaction in the past um, to a substance that was um, frightening and 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 clearly risky. Um, so I think that's really is an important part of what we're doing. The other thing I want to sort of mention is that we're also looking for people who are not at risk because we're trying to do a comparison um, between people who are highly allergic or have mast cell disorders versus um, pretty much everyone else. Uh, so, you know, it's it's another way to get vaccinated. And I guess in my World, help
0: science. <laughs> That's excellent, hey, Dr. Wheatley. How can people enroll in the study? Uh, hopefully, folks are listening and they're they're interested, or our colleagues are listening and they can refer their patients. Do, do people need a referral from an allergist, or they can they, can they initiate contact on their own uh, to talk oh, to the study absolutely. coordinator? Oh,
1: absolutely. They can initiate contact. We are on uh, clinicaltrials.gov under SARS vaccination. Um, And we um, are hoping people will volunteer um, and they can directly contact the sites that are listed there. There will be a contact information. So they should look and see if there's one near them.
0: Okay, excellent. And, again, we'll put uh, links to this on the website and and show notes and things like that. Dr. Atkinson, we just heard Dr. Wheatley's uh, hypothesis that she shared with us. Uh, Do you have any guesses as to what the study may find?
2: Uh, well, I think we probably will see uh, a few reactions, and that, that will be an advantage with regard to a better understanding, as Dr. Wheatley was saying, as part of the uh, object for the study of what the mechanism is. What is it that's trigger- capable
1: of rarely
2: triggering uh, an acute allergic-like reaction? Um, but if we were to study 2,500 patients who have had bad allergic reactions in the past and not a single one of them reacts, that would be a successful study. Even though we can't study mechanisms, well, it doesn't exist. It says that having uh, an allergic reaction in the past doesn't put you at greater risk for a problem with this vaccine. And that would be a wonderful message to be able to go public with at this point in time and, as Dr. Wheatley says, for future mRNA vaccines that are undoubtedly coming down the road?
0: This is the beauty of science, right? Um, this is, you do it and you, you try to answer questions in a uh, systematic way and control for as much as you can and then we'll see what the what answers come out on the other end uh, and interpret them accordingly. It's fantastic. Well, you know, uh, Dr. Wheatley, thank you so much for taking time to join us today, and I really wish you the best with recruitment. I hope that this helps, and I hope that you you exceed your expectations in regards to getting all of the patients enrolled in a timely fashion. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, I do very much, though, so appreciate this opportunity to talk about what I think is a very exciting study.
0: Uh, excellent. Dr. Atkinson, thank you as well for taking the time. I know you're both very busy with your schedules and I wish you the best as well uh, with, the, with the study and, uh, and interpreting all the, the findings that you have. Do you have any parting words for our listeners?
2: Well, only to reemphasize what I think we've been talking about here and that's how excited and, and uh, invested we are in this very important study. And no matter how it turns out, we will uh, have made uh, an advance in knowledge it's going to be appreciated by the, the large number of patients who have allergic problems in, the, in, in our society. So this is a step in the right direction, and those who participate will be making a major contribution to understanding uh, for others as well as themselves um, what the risks are and how they can be best identified if they exist and, um, and managed in the future.
0: Excellent. Well, there's zero pressure here not to put you on the spot, but I, I look forward to reaching out again at the conclusion of the study. And once you have everything ready to, to report out, that hopefully we can have you both on again to tell us what you found. That'd be very exciting. Thank you both again for joining us.
2: Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Please
0: visit org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.